0: Um, this particular passage is uh, and the truth it really touches upon is a topic which I am uh, very passionate about and it's, it's regarding what's known as the doctrine of scripture in, in the broader sense okay um, it, it's where, Timoth- sorry, where Timothy is being told or really reminded as we'll see from verses 14 and 15 in particular about what the scripture is and what it does and, and what it's for and I'll, I'll go through to, to sort of explain my outline for the sermon, um, but this particular passage communicates a very, very important truth, a truth that, that is fundamental to our to our faith and to our just general Christian living. Um, the doctrine of scripture is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith um, and I'll of course explain why that's the case. Uh, and so it's a privilege for me to actually be able to bring to you uh, a sermon on this topic and so I hope that we can learn plenty of things from it. Uh, I hope that God can speak to us through what he wrote through Paul um, and I hope that we can, of course, have a good time in doing so. Uh, If you would begin with me in prayer, though. Father God, we we thank you for this opportunity to, to congregate here and to worship you. Father, we acknowledge in this place that you alone are God. We acknowledge that you are the creator and sustainer of all things, that you are the author of our salvation. Father, I pray as our Lord did that you would sanctify us in the truth, for thy word is truth. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. What I would like to do first is to indulge you in a very, very brief but important nonetheless, history lesson um, and emphasis on the brief part. Um, one part of, of why I really wanted to look at this um, particular passage is because of how It has been debated in a sense, but how it's been viewed throughout church history, and particularly since the 16th century, which is best known for the Protestant Reformation. Some of you may have heard that. Some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about. And so I'll explain explain briefly. The Reformation, uh, what we colloquially call the Reformation, occurred in Central Europe, in Germany specifically in the 16th century AD, is where a number of people, but particularly a very brave man, a German Franciscan monk by the name of Martin Luther, not to be confused with Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, uh, a German monk, uh, in turn battled the Holy Roman Empire over the central tenets of of the faith. And the founding, uh, or the founding doctrine, I should say, that was rediscovered during this period, uh, was a doctrine known as sola scriptura. It's a Latin phrase meaning scripture alone scriptura, scripture alone, sola. And upon that founding doctrine that was rediscovered out of this dark period that was uh, of theological sort of cloudiness that was the Roman Catholic Church, came about all these things because of scrolls, sutura. Things like faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone, modelling off. Ephesians 2.8, the fact that we're not saved by works, but we're saved by grace alone in Christ alone. But the founding doctrine was Sola Scriptura. And so out of that, true Christianity, biblical Christianity exploded across Europe and then in turn exploded across the rest of the world as it travelled through England and then in turn travelled through the Puritans and across the Mayflower into the United States and then across the world. But through sort of 19th century rationalism and the quote-unquote Enlightenment period, which saw God denied scripture challenged on every page and a rise of what we call secular humanism, the founding tenet, Sola Scriptura, was all but thrown out in many people's eyes. It was all but disregarded in many societies. And through that period, through the rise of liberalism and 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 humanism as we know it today, as it developed through the 1900s, this doctrine of sola scriptura is challenged on almost every front, outside the church certainly, and sadly enough, many times inside the church. There's a big question for a lot of people as to whether they can actually believe what the Bible says, whether it is, as the subtitle there says, inerrant, which I'll go on to define, and sufficient, which I'll also go on to define. And so today for us, it is vitally important that we A, understand, B, believe and C, contend for the inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture. It is important for our personal lives and it is important for the kingdom of God at large. And so as we go through this, may we keep in mind that it will be part of our goal hopefully coming out of this evening's sermon. So now I'll begin sort of in verse 14 and 15 and, also, and this is the preface that or the backdrop really that, uh, that Paul sets in this part that he's writing to Timothy. Um, what he particularly does here and I'll read out in a moment is he tells him the importance of this both for his life and ministry and in essence he's doing that through reminding him. So if you would read along with me picking up in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. (laughs) And so there we see he's starting off, he's saying, stay firm in what you believe, continue in what you have learned. He's telling Timothy, who in in particular, if we think of his ministry life, is just leaving the train station, whereas Paul is nearly at the end, he can see the finish line. So this is a wiser, older man of God instructing a younger, when I say younger, I don't necessarily mean a teenager, but a younger man of God in the way that he should go. But you notice what he says, he doesn't say, hear this new teaching that will just leave you go smack because you've never heard it before. He says what? He says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, it's past tense. Why? Because Timothy, as we used to see from... The greater scope of the New Testament, he learned this. He learned the faith. He was taught the scriptures from his grandmother and his mother, faithful women of God, who taught Timothy and brought him up in the ways that are true and are right and are godly. And he's appealing to Timothy here to remember what you've remember what you've been taught. Remember what you've believed. They taught you these things because they cared for your soul. They cared for your soul. And they taught you the truth that is necessary for your life. And so, first off, I want to remind us that, especially especially people my age, younger people, we should never ever negate the truths and the biblical truths that our parents so faithfully taught to us. Our parents, our Christian parents, have been faithful to raise us and, and teach us in the ways that we should go. And so we should remember that they're not just silly old farts who have no idea what it's like to be a millennial. Our parents are wise. okay. And even for those who have not come from Christian households, who have not had Christian parents or, or relatives or whatnot, understand that even in this congregational setting, even in a church setting, it is wise to listen to the older men and women of God because they have walked with the Lord for decades and decades and decades. Some of I'm saying that is a good thing. I'm trying to. Okay. But it is wise to listen to them. He's wise to stay firm in the faith that has been taught to us. And this is precisely what he does here because what Paul ends up doing at the beginning of chapter 4 is he then goes on to show Timothy how to continue in the truth of the scripture in his ministry or in his preaching specifically. But right here he's saying stay firm to what you have believed. He's encouraging him. In this. Why? Because without the scriptures, Timothy knows nothing, nothing about Jesus Christ. He knows nothing of who he is, what he did, he knows nothing of the redemptive power and the saving grace thereof. I'll be discussing on the on the twentieth of December, sort of part two of this mini series called Sola Scripture, which I'll be looking at Psalm nineteen which deals with what's called general revelation, in other words, how God has revealed himself through creation. Okay, but In terms of what's called special revelation or specific revelation, i.e. the Bible, it is only through this that we know anything about Jesus Christ who we come here to worship every Sunday. And that is what he is reminding him of. He is saying, stay firm to this because you know nothing, nothing about the God, that you represent in that kind of detail are apart from this word. And it's an important thing to remember as we continue through this sermon. What Paul does here in this particular, so in passages, particularly verses 16 and 17, is this. He uses a methodology which is based off Psalm 19, or you can let's trace it to Psalm 19. Okay, and what he does is he describes what the Bible is, then certainly what it is for, and then he finishes with what it does. Or in other words, let's think of it this way. He describes what the Bible's nature is, what its qualities are, and then what its usefulness is. Okay? And that'll, be, that'll become apparent in, or in both sermons, but it'll become apparent as I sort of break it down um, and break down the phrases and the meanings and, and what they mean. Okay? So this is, he's describing here what it is, what it is for and what it does, which is why particularly these two verses are so powerful. So it's a very, very, very powerful. And so let us begin with what the Bible is. So he starts, and I'll read through the full passage, and then we'll bring it back, and then we'll sort of dissect it from there. In verse 16, or beginning in verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay so let's pick up on the first phrase this is the what is what the bible is part okay we see that at the very beginning of verse 16 all scripture is breathed out by god or you might have in your translation all scripture is god breathed either all these particular words in the greek it's pasta graphe literally all scripture god breathed and in three words or at least how we translate it here all scripture is breathed out by God, we have a foundational reason, a foundational argument for the inerrancy of God. Now, what is the inerrancy of God? You can see it on the on the overhead there. The iner- inerrancy simply means without error, in error. Let's see, inerrancy, without error. Okay, and it's the first part of the doctrine of Scripture that the Bible is without error. It is. Perfect in the sense that it is without error, and everything thereof is without error. And this is, amongst most Christians, would would agree and affirm that the Bible is indeed inerrant. Some don't, unfortunately, um, but the vast majority do. But nonetheless, this is a particular affront from culture. This part is where the world will particularly wage war. is, Is in regard to the inerrancy of Scripture. Because, with the rise of, like I said, the 19th century Enlightenment, and that includes uh, quasi scientists and philosophers such as Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution, and, and major challenges and affronts to what the Bible says about what it says, those things all culminate in a major attack on the doctrine of inerrancy and the fact that you know what what is actually written here is true. Okay, and so that's the first point we need to understand is that by God saying through Paul that all scripture is breathed out by him, he's making some very, very major claims to the inerrancy. Okay, and now we'll go through and look at particularly what, what comes from this, which is what's also called the doctrine of plenary verbal inspiration, and I'll make it very simple by explaining those terms. Okay, they're easy to understand. So the word plenary just simply means all. Okay, and it's derived from that first word, pastor. All, literally all, okay? And so what we have here is an explanation from Paul that all scripture, or you can translate it at the same time, every scripture is God-breathed. No matter which way you go with it, either all or every, it's still saying the same thing. If you were just to translate it, and there's a very good reason why we do, to say all scripture is God-breathed, it is saying that every single part of the 66 books of the Bible are inspired, they are God-breathed, all of them. Or even if you were to say every, it's saying that every passage that you come across is inspired. Does that make sense? Every, all, all of it is inspired. Okay, And what this does, this eliminates what's called partial inspiration. I've met too many people who would say to me, yes, I believe the Bible, but I don't really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. I don't really believe that Joshua and... And the Israelites walked around Jericho and it came down. Do you really believe that Adam and Eve were created in, on the sixth day in a six day week? Do you really believe that? And this is what this eliminates it eliminates partial inspiration, it eliminates cherry picking, if you want to call it that. It eliminates cherry picking. Doesn't matter who it is, it eliminates you going, Yes, I believe the things that. Make me feel better about myself, but the hard truths? Hmm, no, not really. First, uh, First Corinthians six nine. I don't really know about that one. Okay, and we as Christians are told here that every part is God breathed, every, and so we cannot pick and choose what we want to believe about it. Does that make sense? We cannot pick and choose. All of it is inspired. The second section, verbal, simply meaning the words, or, or specifically the text. This is we get this from the word graphê in the Greek, there, graphê, meaning all, also meaning words. Okay, and what this simply does is it eliminates what we what we call um, subjective inspiration. So subjective inspiration is this. Here is a common argument I hear, especially at Bible College, um, We're dealing with other other sort of scholars and theologians. I hear this argument that. The scriptures are inspired because they inspire me. Do you see what see that? So the scriptures are inspired because they inspire me. I remember listening to a um, a theological debate. And of course, all you all of you do that. I know. Um, but I uh, conducted at the University of Edinburgh um, between two scholars, uh, one Old Testament, one New Testament, uh, called Nigel Cameron and Graham Old. Okay, and in the process of this three and a half hour debate. Um, they had to obviously begin by defining what they meant by inspiration as they were laying out their, uh, their sort of primary uh, affirmations. And so what Cameron all described as inspiration, he defined it as just that. Scripture is inspired because it inspires me. And in the middle of sort of this, this opening statement, uh, the other gentleman, Nigel Cameron, sort of yells out, Oh, you're a Coleridgean. I don't expect any of you to understand what that means, um, and I didn't either until I sort of went and looked at it. Uh, and, and everyone was sort of looking and going, what are you talking about? And he said Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He was a 19th century existential, existential philosopher, and uh, he described that same erroneous philosophy that you've just said. Everyone's known it's been wrong for centuries. <laughs> okay, And so the point is that you can't have this view that the ideas of Scripture are inspired. There are very subtle differences between believing that the text is inspired and that the ideas are inspired. And you'll see throughout this whole thing that it's very important as to what our terminology is on a lot of this stuff. Because our terminology and how we actually understand things and define things can either keep us on track or it can move us one step or one step you know, to the left or the right. But one step to the left or the right on this stuff can be in error. Okay, And so the ideas of Scripture are not inspired. It's the text itself. It's the text itself. And what that stops is it stops people from doing what John commanded us not to do in Revelation chapter 22, which is add or subtract. Because if we believe the ideas, just the ideas of Scripture are inspired, then what's the problem with changing the wording? What's the problem with changing, uh, you know, and saying, oh, look, that could be rewritten a different way how I feel it is? Subjectivism. Okay, I'm not talking about translations here either. I'm talking about the actual uh, documents that it was written in—the actual Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic. Okay, and translations is a different issue, which I suppose you can come and talk to me about after. I'm not particularly addressing it here. Um, but the actual—the actual Bible, the text itself—is inspired. It's the verbal, it's the word. It's not the ideas thereof. Okay, and then the third part of this. Inspirations, a plenary verbal inspiration. We get this from the word they deos meaning God, Nustas meaning breathed, sort of with a nuance of the spirit, but breathed. God breathed. Okay, and those words literally means, and we see there that that is a very important part. And all that Paul's doing here is he's simply quoting from what Jesus said. All these ideas that he's getting are not original in that sense. He's simply Reiterating what Jesus himself taught. You might remember in Matthew 4, verse 4, that Jesus said, What when he was tempted by Satan? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word God breathed. And it is the same word that God spoke, sorry, in the same way that God spoke the world into being, that he spoke his word. And it is also in the same sense that it is the word made flesh who spoke into being his redeemed people. God spoke the world into creation and every word that proceeds from his mouth is true. We see in Numbers 20, uh, 23 that it says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He's using the, the term son of man, not in the in the... Theistic sense, but in the human sense, God is not man that He should lie. God cannot lie. This is also backed up when the writer of Hebrews writes, uh, "Is because it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us." This is consistently said: it is impossible for God to lie. Why? Because He is truth. He is by very nature the definition of truth. And so, therefore, what is written, what he speaks, is truth. That is what plenary verbal inspiration means. That is what Paul means when he says, Paso when he says all Scripture is God-breathed. And that's the first and foremost evidence of the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay? And so, continuing on to what the Bible is for... We see there in verse 16b, if we would uh, read along together, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Many times, um, a lot of people have a discussion as to how we how can we make Christianity relevant, or how can we make the Bible relevant to a 21st century Western world. In my argument is that I don't need to sit around and uh, devise ways and methodologies in which I can make God relevant or I can make his word relevant. The Bible is absolutely relevant to you in and of itself. And more than that, it is more than just relevant. It is profitable. Profitable. You notice Paul does not say, oh, and it's a good idea to consult the Bible, if you ever want to try and reprove someone or teach them something. He said, is it profitable? And why is it profitable? Because it's essential. It's essential. And we'll see in terms of when we discuss sufficiency, a topic which I'll then further talk about in my next sermon, why it is essential. Okay, But let's see what it's, what is, what it's profitable for. It's profitable for four things, as you have up there. It is profitable for first teaching, that is the imparting of knowledge, of the knowledge of who God is and what he has done. As I said earlier everything we know about Jesus Christ, his incarnation his his sinlessly perfect life, his atonement on the cross for the sins of his people and then the resurrection from the dead to life. We know that from where? We know it from the scriptures. We know it from the word of God. Sure you may have have heard it from a preacher first, you may have heard it or you may have read it uh, in, in some book or some description, but ultimately where are they getting that from? They're getting it from the Word of God. Okay, And so the scripture is sufficient for the teaching of people, is sufficient for all the knowledge of God and what he has done. Okay? Secondly there, we see that it's profitable for reproof, that is the identifying of and warning against false beliefs and false behaviours. So reproof, this scripture of course it encourages us and it spurs us on to to godly living but also what it does is it reflects to us the darkness that is in us it reflects to us the the evil deeds of our own flesh never has anything in this world ever cut me to the core like the word of god has i mentioned in brevity first corinthians 6 9 about those, a description of those who will not inherit eternal life. It's a hard passage to read. Why? Because it's the truth. And why? Because it reflects to me like a mirror my own flesh. Okay? And the Bible is good for encouragement, but it is also good for loving reproof. Loving reproof. Okay? And so, don't shy away from the passages that 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 tell us who we are in and of ourselves. Okay, that highlight to us our sin, because ultimately, that's you know that's you know the Bible describes how the law is a schoolmaster. The law was given for the conviction of sin. The law doesn't save you. The law condemns you, and it condemns me. The law was never created to save anybody. The law was created to condemn so that Christ then may save. Do you see? And so that is what it is profitable for. It is profitable for showing us who we really are so that we may then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be then conformed into the image and likeness of the Son. Do you see? It is also profitable for, you know, for a pastor or ministers or elders to then come to people if they are living in sin and say, you know, and highlight to them that sin. Okay? And so that's not a bad thing. I want to make a point of that. It's not a bad thing. All right? God does that for very good reasons. Okay. Thirdly, it is profitable for correction. And that is the helping of that wayward brother, if we we're talking about that, uh, to return to right belief and behaviour. It is a setting straight of that believer and a restoration thereof. And so it doesn't just leave people hanging in the muck and the mire. Whether it be... Uh, a non-believer reading the scriptures and then coming to know their own depravity. It doesn't just leave them there. Why? Because it tells them of the redemptive work that was wrought on the cross by Christ. It tells them of the of the blood that was spilt to atone for their sins and to make them right before a holy God. Do you see what I'm saying? In the same sense, if we hold, and even as Christians, if we hold an erroneous belief, if we hold a belief that is actually not true, When it points it out to us, it doesn't just leave us there in this sort of the verge of apostasy. What it rather does is it then teaches us, no, here's what is true and here's what is correct so that we may then believe it. Do you see? And it's profitable very much for that. And then finally, it is profitable for training in righteousness. That is the exercise of biblical discipleship and instruction in godliness. It is profitable for training in righteousness. We as Christians, we want to be like our Saviour Jesus. That is the goal of our life. The goal of our life as Christians is to bring glory to God. We ultimately want to be conformed into the image of our Son. That's why we're called Christians in the first place. Okay? That's why we're disciples of Him in that sense. And ultimately, His Word teaches us that. How do we know what Jesus was like? It's from the Word. How do we know what God, as a triune God, is like? Well, we see that through the word. We see his qualities, his character, who he is, what he's done. Okay, And it is completely profitable. It is, it is, it is sufficient to train you in righteousness to as you walk with God to continue to be sanctified in the truth. It is profitable for that. And so what you want you know in terms of I want you know if you're if you're sitting here and saying I want to live a holier life, I want to you know do right by God, well then I don't want to call it a manual, but come to the the word of God that will teach you that and will show you how to do that. Does that make sense? So finally let's move on to what the Bible does. We see here, interestingly, that it's almost a combination between the the end of verse 15 and then verse 17. And so let, let me read it to you, okay? Because what Paul does here is he shows us how the scriptures are sufficient, which I'll define in a moment, for life and for godliness as two separate and distinct things, okay? So let me read to you from verse 15 what the word can do and what it does do it makes you wise for salvation through faith in christ and then secondly from verse 17 that the man of god may be complete so that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work so we see two distinct things here what is the scripture sufficient for okay and as you can see as we can see there um sufficiency sorry pardon me Verse 15 is talking about justification. Justification meaning the process of salvation, when you get saved. You are justified before God. You are set right before him and you are treated that way. That is what justification is. And then he follows it up in verse 17 by talking about sanctification, the ongoing process whereby holiness is increased and sinfulness is decreased as we continue to walk, with God ultimately in hope and in view of one day glorification or in other words where we are made sinlessly perfect either when we die or when Jesus returns whichever one may come first and so we see that this is sort of what he, he's touching upon Romans 10.14 which is talking about how shall they know unless they hear and how should they hear unless someone is sent to speak to them or to preach to them depending on how you translate it okay And so it is completely sufficient, the word of God, for saving people and as we sort of just talked upon there uh, from the end of verse 16, for training in righteousness or in other words for growing people in godliness. It is completely and utterly sufficient to do that. Okay. Sufficiency, the, the definition of sufficiency is simply this. It means that the Bible is all that we need for salvation, nor for Christian faith and practice. It is all that is needed, is what the point I want to try and highlight there. It's all that is needed. There is no need for how would I say, not to diminish their value in a sense, but there is. You don't need the top ten Christian books of 2015, written by whatever various author. You don't need it. Not saying they're not helpful in regards, but you do not need them. Okay. In the same sense, you don't need to go and consult psychics or mystics to try and find out, you know, your future or to try and find out what God wants from you know, wants from you or this and that kind of stuff. You don't need to consult them. We're commended not to, but why? Because we do not need them. The scripture is all that is needed for salvation and then for Christian faith and practice. Do you see that? It is all that is needed and is also sufficient in the sense that it is complete and I'm beginning to round up here. Okay, It's sufficient in the sense that it's complete, complete meaning it is culminated, it is wholly complete. What I mean by that is this, there is no sort of ongoing past past. The, the finishing of john and or the revelation written by John, there is no ongoing divine revelation. Obviously, we understand that the scriptures were, as Peter describes in second peter first so second peter one twenty one that holy men of God wrote or spoke as they were moved along by the spirit of God, okay? and so the Bible is constructed of God working through his people, God working through his authors. It's kind of like this, you've got, um, in the same way that you might write a letter, is it yourself or it is the pen that is writing? The answer is obviously it's you. The pen is merely an instrument or a tool. Okay. In the same sense, it is God who wrote the scripture, that's what we've been looking at with inspiration. He didn't overtake their personalities, uh, their cultural backgrounds, their history, and they sort of just dictated in this monotone voice as they sort of wrote down what God was putting in their mind, kind of thing. Okay, but rather God worked through them as the Spirit moved them to write. Okay, He was divinely revealing to them those things, either through, uh, you know, obviously in a sense through prophecy, through them getting words from God or getting visions from God, and then and then writing that down. And so in that sense, that is my point: is that there is no ongoing divine revelation the scripture is sufficient in that it is complete when i get up here to preach i am not bringing to you a dictation so to speak or even if it wasn't a dictation i'm not i'm not receiving words from god i don't sort of lock myself in a cupboard and and wait till i hear an audible or inaudible voice from god and then start writing it down quickly to try and remember it i don't do that what i do is i go and earnestly study the scriptures and of course the Holy Spirit is the only one who makes me understand it because if he didn't, I'd just be a babbling buffoon. More so than I am now. Um, okay, But I come here speaking Dan- as Daniel Thomas, but I exegete or I expound, I explain God's already spoken word. Do you see the difference? So there is no ongoing divine revelation in that sense. Okay, And this particular, and the reason why I'm talking about this more briefly, and I'll talk about sufficiency more in my next sermon on Psalm 19. But the reason why I wanted to talk, other than the fact that this is actually what it's talking about, is this: is because this area, the sufficiency of God, I oh, say the the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, the primary affront to that, I'm sad to say, come from inside the church, in the general sense. Okay, with with move with with the prominence of moves that also oh, movements that. Either claim to receive further divine revelation through either audible, inaudible words, or, or vision, or whatnot, what or then more prevalently through movements that would rather rely on the latest marketing strategies and on entertainment to draw people to church, rather than the fact that God's word is preached. It is those kind of things that bring an affront to this, because by doing such things, by and I'm not I'm not talking about anything in particular. I'm talking in a very general sense here, purposefully. But by relying on those things to either increase godliness or to bring people to salvation, by relying on generally worldly methods to do those things as opposed to the fact that scripture is sufficient, it shows that, th- that those people, those movements, don't believe that scripture is sufficient. Because it's ultimately saying, without even speaking, that the Bible's not useful to do what it says it does. It is not useful to save people. We need, um, you know, all these entertainment aspects so that we can set proper moods and stuff. And at the same time, you know, people, you know, if they want to get blessed, will come to me because I'm the one who hears directly from God. I hear and I can tell you what's, you know, you need to be doing next week, or I need to, you know, I need to. I'm here to tell you that that blessing is just around the corner if you just sow that thousand dollar seed into my ministry. You do not need to rely on these people. And I say that as humbly as I honestly can and I say that in love. Do not feel that you are less spiritual or that you are less in connection with God because you see people that claim to hear from God every other week and claim to do all these things that I'm sorry. They are for the apostles and for the prophets and then you see yourself and go, well, why don't I hear audible words from God? because I know too many people that have either deserted their faith or are continually in a state of condemnation because they don't receive these things or they see people who claim to receive these things okay and I want to tell you that you are you are part of a priesthood you are you know I'm a very you know I'm a very firm believer in you know as Baptists have believed traditionally for since its inception in what's called the priesthood of all believers Okay, there is, there is no, obviously we have pastors, we have elders, and we have leaders within the church which are absolutely necessary. But they're not more in touch with God than you. doesn't matter whether you're, you know, older, it doesn't matter whether you're a five-year-old. Okay, you are just as important to God and you are just as in connection with him and you have just as much of the Holy Spirit as anyone else. Okay, so you need not feel lesser or you need not feel you know, less important to God because you don't you know, have these things that people claim to have. You hear from God every day in the most personal way that he has made and that is through here. Obviously this is a cliche of if you want to hear from God read your Bible out loud, right? But that whole cliche is based off reality it 's based off a very important truth called the sufficiency of scripture it 's based off the fact that God does speak to you. He speaks to you, and he has written this for you and for his glory. And so ultimately, what I want to encourage us as I now finish is this. So I just completed a, a, a paper. Um, at college, right? For a particular my ecclesiology subject. And the question that I was given or was tasked with researching was was regarding what constitutes an authentic church. What are the essential elements that constitute an authentic church? Which is a pretty important question. Okay. And and through my through my research of of, of scholarships throughout the centuries and through more piles of paper and books that I would have ever liked to have actually looked at. One of the founding conclusions that I based my my answers upon was this, was that an authentic church will have both a high view of God, high view of God, and a high view of Scripture. Okay, a high view of God and a high view of Scripture, neither of which are devoid from the other. So a church will have a high, an authentic church will have a high view of God. They will esteem God higher than anything in the universe, which I'm sure we all obviously agree with. But at the same time, and not not any, less more important, you know, not any less important, is that they'll have a high view of scripture. Why? Because this is written by God. The fact that we even have this is a privilege. Men and women have died for this. You can go and look up anyone throughout church history. There are are tens of thousands of people who have died to defend this. People died in the Reformation, that that, that part of history that I began the sermon with. People lost their lives because they were condemned as heretics for denying the perversions of the Roman Catholic Church. And they were burnt at the stake. They were beheaded. They were speared to death. They were quartered. You look A reformer in the time of Martin Luther from uh, from Switzerland from Geneva was quartered quarterings where they attach rope to your four limbs, attach the ropes to the horses, and then say giddy up. William Tyndale was burned at the stake in England when the Catholic the Catholic the then Catholic monarch wanted nothing but his life taken for uh, in her eyes blaspheming her for saying that no. It is the Word of God that is the foundation of truth, not your traditions and not your councils and not your popes. So people died for it. And gladly, with the view that the people of God would have the Word of God available to them at all times. And that's why I'm passionate about this topic. is because God has worked through men and women and they have died so that every single one of us can open up His Word and learn about Him, and rejoice in Him. And so may we, as Black Earth Baptist Church, as a as a as a congregation, and then as individuals, have a high view of God. And have just as high a view of Scripture. Pray that would bless you this week. Would you close me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that you have communicated to us through your word. We thank you for the fact that Jesus died on the cross to take upon himself the wrath of God on our behalf. and I pray to thank you that your word communicates that to us. I also pray to thank you for the fact that just as you promised, you would preserve your word for all generations. Lord, we thank you uh, and we thank you for and we remember those who have died throughout the church's history to defend not only the truth of the scripture but its existence. Lord, I pray that we as a people here at Blackheath Baptist Church would rest upon the word of God, Lord, that it would be a foundation upon which we live and which we practice this faith that you have given us. Father, I pray that our souls may rest assured in the fact that this word is without error, for you yourself are without error. May we rest upon the fact that it is sufficient for salvation and for Christian living, because you yourself are sufficient. Father, we praise you and we thank you for all of these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. Amen.